everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast that goes snitch. This episode, we are going to wrap up all the Wolverine-type books for November and finish that up so we get ready for December, which it technically already is, but, you know, it's just how it goes sometimes. Well, anyway, enough of that, so alright, here we go! That's right, it's time for Astonishing X-Men Annual Number 1, the first one. It is Welcome to the Family. It is written by Christus Gage, penciled by David Baudian, inked by Jordi Tarragona, colorist is Veronica Gandini, lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, and the cover is by David Williams and J. David Ramos. And the cover is kind of just the astonishing team with Kyle, and they're taking off <laughs> to go. I don't know. Anyway, it's a nice cover, nice little action poses, and kind of X Men preparing for battle. You know, and I gotta say, as far as the pencils go in the interior, I really like. Baldeons or Baldeons. Not sure how you would say it, but he did a really good job in this book. Um, you know, him and Gage were part of the creative team that did the last little bit of uh, X-Men Legacy. I think him, he switched off with uh, that other guy. Um, Sandifal, I think. What's his name? The guy's doing Catwoman now. Um, anyway, I really like his facial expressions. I feel like he conveys a lot in his faces. And all the art's good, but that's just kind of a strength of his I really enjoy. And, you know, it's a nice touch. Especially, and it, it plays really well in this book because there's a lot of conversation. And as we get into the story, we'll kind of see some of the obvious emotions and Baldeon or Baldeon's art really plays that up without hamming it up like it's just I don't know it's a really nice balance of he's a little bit cartoony too but but I like his cartoonism (laughs) and the writing's really good which I I didn't mean I didn't mean for that to sound surprised I like Chris's Gage um, but I will say if if all the X-Men Legacy issues that these two guys did together 
were as strong as this annual, I would have enjoyed the end of that book a lot more. For whatever that's worth to you, the listener, as uh, just my personal opinion. I feel like that series was kind of hit and miss, but this story really hits. I think it's really good. So let's uh, get into it. We start off at the Hotel Plaza Athene. I guess that's how you say that. It is a really nice hotel in Paris. And I'm assuming France, not Texas. If there's a hotel this nice in Paris, Texas, then I should go there. <laughs> it is not that far for me. But anyway, so we have North Star and Kyle finally getting to their honeymoon. I don't know where exactly this story falls in continuity. Continuity. It is an annual, so sometimes they kind of play with the timeline with annuals a little bit. So it may, I don't know if it exactly follows the Madripoor story or if it's closer to the wedding. Of course, the Madripoor story kind of came right on the heels of the wedding. So even though it was a few months for us, obviously in comic time, it really could have only been a few days. So they may have only barely postponed the honeymoon. So anyway, now they're on it. And they're in Paris. And North Star has the greatest honeymoon of all time, according to him, planned out. But they walk into their suite and they're greeted by the astonishing X-Men. They're very dour-looking, astonishing X-Men. And, of course, Kyle is like, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> As you have five X-Men standing in your room, frowning very hard. And North Star is kind of looks surprised, like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> it's funny. He said, there was meant to be a string quartet. And Karma, saying one of the funniest things she said, maybe ever, <laughs> It's like, they left. Apparently, they found this off-putting. It's like, and a lobster dinner. And Gambit's like, what did I tell you, Sheree? Deathbird's like, warriors must be well-fed for battle. So North Star's like, no, I can't do this. I'm not going on any missions. I don't care what insanity Mr. Sinister or the Marauders are up to. You will handle it without me. Wolverine's like, it ain't none of those guys. The friends, and so what's happening is the friends of humanity are back. They're, of course, they're an anti-mutant hate group. And this version, Wolverine says, has a special mat on for quote-unquote race traitors or humans who support mutants. And they intercepted some communications and the friends of humanity have put assassination contracts out on the people the X-Men love. Not the X-Men themselves. And of course, North Star glances over to Kyle with a worried look on his face. And he genuinely genuinely looks really worried. And Kyle's kind of like, I don't know what to think about this. And you can see that without him saying anything. And then we have a nice shot of North Star with kind of his eyes blackened out. You can tell he kind of shows the dark thought coming over him. He's like, even on our honeymoon... And Wolverine basically says, well, if we knew, we would have tried to have already started doing this without you and left you alone. But we need you. We need you to use your speed to go find them, to track them down. And he's like, no, I refuse to leave Kyle. 
on you know on your honeymoon. You're gonna be attacked at any time. But they decide that they're gonna stay and guard Kyle if he'll go and find him. And Kyle kind of talks him into it. He's like, Paris will be here when you get back, and so will I. Make sure every other X-Man has their loved ones to come home to. Which I thought was very, you know, big and sympathetic of Kyle. So, and he's a character, I like this Kyle character. He tells uh, Northstar, you got to know my family, now I'll get to know yours. Because he's going to be stuck in the hotel room with all the X-Men. And that, actually, you know, we get all these action shots of Northstar running around fighting. But really, the crux of this story is all the little vignettes we're going to get with Kyle and the different X-Men as they're kind of stuck in this hotel room waiting for Northstar to, to find the Friends of Humanity. So our first trip is to Tokyo, and Northstar is helping Amiko. And Kyle's first conversation is with Karma. I actually like Karma more in this issue than I've probably ever liked her. And so, I, you know, I may have exaggerated a little bit earlier. That may not have been the funniest line she's ever said, but this is really the most I've ever liked her. So the first conversation is with Karma, and Karma's talking about how she's not worried about her brother and sister because they're at the X-Mansion, and that's pretty much the safest place they can be. And she laments that, you know, there are kids now, but what happens when they're older and she's overprotective and they're, are they going to resent her for it? And Kyle's like, hey, no, do I like the fact that I'm spending my honeymoon without my husband? Of course not, but sometimes we make sacrifices for the people we love. We've made plenty for them. They won't mind making a few for you. And then Karma kind of turns on and was like, but you chose to be with North Star. My brother and sister had no choice in this. You really think they'll be so charitable when this has been going on for 10 years? And she kind of realizes that she snapped at him and she gets kind of starts to cry. She's like, oh, Kyle, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I'm just scared. And I was like, no, I understand. It's stressful. And her phone rings. And it's funny. He's got a real big grin on his face, which I think is sincere. But the next panel is walking off. He has a really worried look on his face. So I think he's kind of processing that the karma did make some good points, but he's still trying to be optimistic. And so karma goes into the kitchen. Wolverine's in the fridge. And karma's like, Northstar uh, and Amiko captured some of the Friends for Humanity. And Amiko is going to interrogate him while Northstar moves on to India. And Wolverine's glad because he's tired of waiting. <laughs> so then Kyle meets up with Gambit. And they're going to play cards. And Gambit is... Gambit asks if he knows a card game, which I've never heard of. I guess it's Bure or Bure. I'm not sure. And Kyle's like, yeah, I do know that game. And Gambit's like, you're kidding me. I'm rich and cultured. Things don't work out with Northstar. I might marry you myself. And we see Northstar fighting in Mumbai. And then we switch back to Gambit and Kyle talking about how his marriage, he married his childhood sweetheart and it might have worked out if they were left to themselves, but they weren't. Both their families interfered. And of course we know that was, well, he says too, that that was the Thieves Guild and the Assassins Guild, which, you know, kind of a Romeo and Juliet level feud between the, uh, Capulets and the other ones. 
I like Shakespeare. I'm I'm just my brain's not working tonight. But um anyway and Kyle says, Yeah, but you know, I've been getting to know we've been getting to know each other's family. North Star gets along with my family and I've met his sister and I get along with her. And but Gambit makes a good point. He's like, but family goes beyond blood, my friend. In my case, we got the entire Thieves Guild and Assassin's Guild mixed up in it. And you got the X-Men. He's like, you might want to fold. And Kyle gets really defensive. And again, not to harp on it too much, but you can really see it in his face. In the in the drawing. And he's like, fold, see, I can't handle this. I didn't get married lightly. And Gambit's like, no, dude, the cards. You're not going to beat me. And he's like, ugh. And Kyle's like, ugh, I'm an idiot. And he's like, nah. An idiot wouldn't worry about it at all. You're right to have your guard up. A relationship's got to be about the people in it. Make it about something else. Family, career, kids, whatever. It's going to wither and die. And Kyle says there's nothing more important to John Paul and me than us. And, and Gavin says that's true, but you're both good people. When crises has come up and lives are on the line, what are you going to do? Look the other way? And Gambit kind of says, you know, look, the X-Men mutants are coming back. We're not endangered anymore. If I was you, I'd, I'd talk John Paul into quitting. Because I ain't sure the X-Men are something a marriage can survive. Then Wolverine says that Yukio called. He thinks the backers of the, of the Friends of Humanity is in Moscow. And we take them out, we cut off their funding. And he goes to get a beer from Wolverine. Then we see North Star in the Ukraine. And now Gambit talks to Iceman. And he says that he tried to quit the X-Men a bunch of times, which we know he has. And he talks about the different jobs he tried, and even the other different superhero teams he tried to be on. Like the champions and the defenders. But he says you can't really ever leave the X-Men. And Kyle's like, isn't that all-consuming? And he says you can have a life... Outside the X-Men too, but you always have the X-Men. And Kyle brings up a valid point. He says, I'm starting to wonder if there's room for both the X-Men and a relationship in anyone's life. I'm not doubting North Star. I'm just wondering if anybody at all can do this. And he talks about, you know, some of the famous X-couples that split up. Most recently, Storm and Black Panther. You also have Colossus and Kitty Pride, And, of course, Rogue and Gambit. <laughs> Iceman. Kind of makes an insensitive joke that he kind of catches himself on. He's like, well, hey, Scott and Jean always split up because she died. <laughs> he's like, oh, okay, wait, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> but he's, he imparts some more wisdom. He's like, I can't promise you it'll work out. But I also couldn't make that promise if you were lawyers and doctors. Like, there's never a promise that's going to work out. you got to work at it, which is very true. And then we see North Star interrogating a guy. He's like, stop! I think he's just running really fast, and maybe the G-Force is hurting him, but he, he apparently crumples and folds, and he's going to tell North Star where the guys are. And then we switch to Kyle and Warbird. And she's doing a fun game where she's putting a knife as fast as she can between her spread fingers. And stabbing the table. And Kyle's like, Warbird, may I ask you a question about your home world? And kind of ask about Shi'ar culture and marriage. And Warbird pretty much says that, that you don't just accept 
the war during your marriage. You get married, like, the war, the fighting, and training, it's all wrapped up in being the marriage. That's part of it. And she basically says that you have to be strong to survive being married to North Star. And she throws him a sword and tells her to attack him, that she's going to train him. And he, another awesome look on his face of just sh- shock and awe and terror. He's like, no, and he throws the sword down. Like, it's not me. And then Warbird's like, all right, well, good luck. <laughs> and then North Star comes back. He's located over there in a Moscow and warehouse. A Moscow and warehouse. A warehouse in Moscow. And they're bankrolled by a Russian mafia boss with a racist streak. And Kyle's worried because North Star's a little beat up. But he's like, no, I'm fine. Better than ever because this is almost over and we can get back to our honeymoon. And Wolverine makes the call that everybody's going to go except for Karma. Because if anybody comes here after Kyle... She can mind control them. So she's the best bet to protect Kyle while they go extract this Russian crime lord. And Kyle's like, I'll be fine. You be careful and call me. I can't stand sitting here not knowing what's going on. Helpless. And North Star's like, hush, as they move in real close. He's like, you run our company. You deal with the press daily. You fought off the influence of the marauders. And married me despite this insane life I live. You were never helpless, my love. You are the bravest man I know. I'll call you when it's over. And Karma's like, he's right. And Kyle kind of says, you know, I know I'm strong, but am I strong enough? Which is, you know, a good question. And we see the X-Men in Moscow with a nice battle scene. But then the guys have found the hotel room. And Karma's like, Kyle, get down! And they smash through the door with a battering ram and throw in a sonic grenade that catches Karma off guard and they knock her out. And the leader of the group is like, oh, the man we came to see. And he walks up to Kyle. And so the X-Men are cornered the crime boss and he shows them on his iPad or whatever that they've captured Kyle and North Star's like, no! And again, nice facial expression. And he flies out the window, and Kyle decides that, you know, he's got a gun pointed to his head, but he's going to try to stall. And he actually uses his strength, his knowledge, his skill set. What do I know to try to help me in this situation? What can I kind of throw up here? And he actually does a good job. He's like, I do branding for a living, and the way you're going about this sucks. All you accomplish with murder is to define yourselves as terrorists and make your cause radioactive. You need to mainstream yourselves. Establish the Friends of Humanity as a legitimate advocacy group. Get laws passed. You know, it's funny because you know Kyle doesn't believe a word of this. Like He doesn't want them to do any of this, but he's trying to stall and get this guy off his back. And he's making a good case. A really good case and a really believable case for something he would completely disagree with. And that is a good talent to have. And then the guy is like, honestly, I agree with you. Unfortunately, my employer prefers methods with more immediate rewards. And Kyle's like, your employer's an idiot. Take the money he spends on guns, sonic grenades, and body armor, and spread it around political campaigns. See how fast things actually get done. 
If your boss can't see that, someone else should be running things. Someone with vision, like you. <laughs> the guy smiles again. You can almost see him chuckling, even without the sound effect. Another good face. He's like, ha, you are a sharp fellow. I like you. I will genuinely regret this. And he pulls the trigger. And just in time, Northstar speeds up and grabs the bullet right before his Kyle in his hand. And he knocks the guy out and takes out the whole room. And Kyle, they give each other a hug and Kyle, you know, Northstar can't see him because their, their faces are cheek to cheek. And Kyle's like, everything's going to be okay. But it looks like he's not sure if he believes it. Another good face. So, and then we have Northstar kind of harping on him like... And the way he stalled was brilliant, amazing. And he was, but Kyle feels like, no, I wasn't. I was just a hostage again. And Norse was like, don't. You were wonderful, the best husband ever. And it's promised we were going to, going to resume the best honeymoon ever. I'll be right back. And he runs out. And Wolverine walks up with a beer. And we get a really good Wolverine moment here. You know, we're on a Wolverine podcast. So this, is, this is really nice when we get right here. By Christus Gage. He's like, hey kid, he's right, you know, you did great. But Kyle's like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life being a liability to him. His vulnerable spot. And we get a really good insight into how Wolverine sees this. He says, can't help that. He loves you. Comes with the territory. Listen, I've lost more than a few people. Some can protect themselves, some couldn't. It didn't make much difference in the end. Or hurt any less. Didn't stop me from wishing it had been me. Or feeling like I shouldn't get close to anyone ever again. But life makes its own plans. I ain't dear Abby. As he starts to smile a little bit. And then really good. <laughs> I know, I, we should count how many times I've said this. And I'm sorry. But another really good face. As Wolverine smiles here. And kind of, kind of grins. He says, I ain't dear Abby, but two things make me think you two can make this work. One, you're going in, eyes open. And two, being together makes you both stronger. So be strong. And the North Star shows up and he's, he's rescheduled all the things he had scheduled for the honeymoon so they can still happen. And he's like, and they will be leaving. But Kyle's like, hold on. They're our family. We're going to the Louvre, right? They should join us. And Northstar, you can tell, he's like, what? Uh, you're being the good guy. I gotta be the good guy too. Okay, fine. They can stay. And they agree that they'll go to the museum together, but then they're immediately leaving right after that. And Northstar's like, yes. <laughs> yes, they're definitely leaving. I really like that story. Uh, I think the little... The little vignettes and the sides of Kyle talking to the different X-Men and all the different perspectives. Both positive and negative on what it's like to be or to try to be in a relationship with an X-Men were very well written. They were kind of poignant. I just I thought Christus Gage did a really good job with that. And you know the action scenes were good too. So everything was just really good. So, you know, actually, I'm going to give this first half of the, of the annual three claws. I thought I thought it was really good all the way around. I thought it was a great way to pick up after the wedding. 
And to give the wedding a lot of depth, I feel like Kyle and Northstar both got it really explored and all the other characters, we kind of got to see what they thought about this kind of thing. And I just, I, I don't know, I just, I felt like this really added a lot of dimension to Kyle and Northstar's marriage. I don't know, I just, I really enjoyed it. So three claws for that. I also thought it was really cool because I don't think it's even mentioned in the whole issue that they're gay. And I know when they got married, it was kind of a big deal in the press because it was like the first gay marriage in comic books. And I thought it was really cool that Marvel did that. And like I've said before, I thought it was cool that it was done in an X-Men book because they've always kind of taken progressive stands on social issues and, and addressed that in the book without being preachy, at least when it's good. And I don't think, I'm not saying that the wedding issue was preachy because I don't think it was. I actually thought it was very handled very well and very well written. But I also like the fact that this issue completely ignored that there was any controversy at all and just told the story like it was completely normal, like it should be. So I thought that was really cool and made me feel good. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed the story. Um, everything was nice. The, the writing, the art, the ink, the colors, even the letters with the, you know, they don't get much credit, I guess. Well, I guess, you know, most by now most comic nerds are giving everybody credit, which is good because they all deserve it. But just point out, I like, you know, I don't know if the letters choose what words to, like, make bold and how to arrange stuff. You know, I don't, I don't really know how it works, I'll be honest, as far as, like, the day-to-day business side of making a comic, like, but I always enjoy Chris Elipoyas' letters, um, the way he arranges things when he decides to make words like characters, you know, like, when he's like, no, you know, North Star flying out the window, we get a really good no. And I don't know if he does stuff or if the artist does stuff, like sound effects, but the blam when the guy tries to shoot Kyle is a very cool looking blam. And I don't, I don't know who gets the credit for that, but, um, anyway, like I said, no, we can move on. But I'm going to give this, this first part of the book three claws. Now, we also, speaking of, of controversy, also have a very, uh, timely reprint of Alpha Flight 106, which, of course, is the issue where North Star came out. The cover is North Star, uh yelling <laughs> and so this issue was written by Scott Lobdell penciled by Mark Pacella each by Dan Panosian letters by Janice Chang colors by Bob Sharon and I gotta say um, you can definitely tell this was in the 90s I think maybe it was the early 2000s I can't remember is there not a date on here no there's not crap well I don't know anyway you can definitely tell it's post image because Mark Pacella is doing the very best Rob Liefeld impersonation he can do and you, know, you remember after image was wildly successful 
And we had a lot of Marvel books for a while that had a lot of kind of image clone artists. And I'm not I'm not trying to dog on Pachella too much, but you can you can just tell. I don't know if he actually came out of Rob Liefeld's studio or not, and then came to Marvel. I don't remember. Did he do any like the Blood Strike stuff? I don't know. Or Brigade. I really didn't read much of that. So I don't really remember who worked on it. But regardless, this guy very much. There's even a picture of this, an older picture of this old Canadian superhero who apparently was the first, which I don't like because Wolverine was supposed to be the first. So piss on that. But um, anyway, we see a shot of him older and he looks just like Lightfield's Cable, you know, but without the, the scars and stuff. So we have this issue. We see this major Maple Leaf guy, and he's watching himself on the news. I guess there's a documentary about him, and he's watching it, and they show a thing about him giving birth to, not giving birth, his wife gave birth, him having a son, and he turns it off, and we get a nice silhouette of him crying on the TV. And then we switch to Alpha Flight, fighting Hyde. From the Masters of Evil. And everybody with black hair. Like North Star looks like he has gray hair. Or at most like a George Clooney salt and pepper. Because the way they colored and inked it. Like to show the strands of his hair. Since his hair is really black. There's just a lot of white lines in it. And it just looks like he's really old. And it doesn't really look like anything I ever remember North Star looking. A he's like super buff. Like Liefeld super buff. And I just don't, I mean, like, I didn't really read Alpha Flight that much. So maybe he looked like this for a long time. But I'm used to a more, like, swim, swim and trim, speedy North Star. And this guy's just really top-heavy. Really thick, buff, super muscular. His face is really action Hollywood movie star. But, whatever. It is North Star. And he finds an abandoned baby. And he runs off and leaves Alpha Flight to take care of the bad guy, or the rest of Alpha Flight. And we skip to three weeks later in the Toronto hospital. They're talking about North Star wants to adopt the baby. But it turns out that the baby was born with AIDS. And North Star looks dejected. And the doctor apologizes. And we have a nice full page spread of North Star leaning over the baby in like a intensive care thing but we have another three weeks later alpha flight giving a press conference about the baby or maybe it's just a fluff piece on the news i don't know anyway they're on the news about the baby when north star the baby and this major maple leaf guy gets mad throws his remote through the tv and he decides he's gonna go get alpha flight and we do have a, a funny little scene where the puck is trying to get North Star out of the hospital room and get some rest because he's pretty much been doting over the sick baby the whole time. Like he's afraid to leave him, which, you know, makes sense. If you're worried he's going to die any minute, then you wouldn't want to leave. But there's a cool little picture of Sasquatch had left a stuffed Sasquatch, like a teddy bear Sasquatch, in the hospital room with the baby. And then Major Maple Leaf breaks into the hospital and he wants to kill the baby because he feels like the baby's getting too much press and too much attention because it has AIDS. When he says his son died of AIDS because the son was gay, nobody cared and he was marginalized. And for whatever reason, that makes him really... Oh, that came out wrong. 
obviously he's mad that his son was marginalized. I'm not sure why he's taking it out on the baby. Seems kind of shallow to think that just because you were wrong, that because someone else is being helped, that you should prevent them from getting help. I don't know about that story beat, but that's where we're going. So Major Maple Leaf and North Star fight, and it turns out that North Star tells him that he's gay, but it's no one's business. But Major Maple Leaf kind of says, well, no, and people need to know. But he says, by not talking about your lifestyle, by closeting yourself, you're as responsible for my son's death son's death as the homophobic politicians who refuse to address the AIDS crisis. And Orson's like, how dare you? I'm no more responsible for Michael's death than he was. And we do agree on one thing, sir. It's past time that people started talking about AIDS, about his victims, those who die, and those of us left behind. And it turns out we come back and the, and the baby's dying and North Star wants to hold it in his arms as it dies and Major Maple Leaf comes and puts his hands on his shoulder. And they're both just freaking huge. Golly. But then the last page is like a newspaper article kind of thing and it shows a picture of North Star doing a press conference and he says, It has been said silence equals death. I no longer wish to be that part of the death that is the AIDS crisis, said John Paul Bobea. Bobet? Bobeer? I don't even know how to say his name. I'm not French-Canadian. Beauvoir. Beauvoir. I don't know. The former Olympic athlete better known as North Star of Alpha Flight. A day after his daughter adopted, adopted daughter Joanne died as a result of complications from AIDS, Beauvoir held a press conference where he announced he is gay. It is my fervent wish that the expression of my homosexuality will open the doors of conversation. And then the uh, story is continued on page three. So I'd actually never read that before. This is my first time to read that. I was aware of it. But like I said, I wasn't an Alpha Flight fan. And while I remember the news surrounding it, that issue actually came out during a span when I was in college and wasn't actively collecting comic books at that time. I really kind of got back into comics uh, after I graduated from college. Honestly, there's just too much going on and too many other things I wanted to do. But I think I've talked about that before. So I missed it when it happened, and I knew about it, but I just, I, this is my first time to read it. And while I appreciate its importance, the story was kind of okay. Um, it was a little preachy, and like I said, I just, the whole thing hinges on Major Maple Leaf, which is a stupid character. <laughs> You know, I joked about uh, the guy from Alpha Flight being called Captain Canada. That would have been much better. Well, maybe it's not. It's not that bad. Whatever. Anyway, the whole thing kind of hinges on him and North Star fighting and kind of realizing each other's pain and coming to grips with it. I, just, I really don't understand why he felt like the unfairness of his son's death meant it was okay to attack somebody else and prevent them from getting up. I just, I don't get that part. This guy's supposed to be a superhero, and I know his loss was terrible, and he's been through a lot, and he's had dark days since he lost his son, and he rightly, and is correct to feel like he was ignored, and that his son and his son's death were marginalized. And I agree with all that. I guess it's just kind of the superhero thing. 
Like, he wants, instead of just like a normal person, would just go and try to talk to North Star and say, hey, let me tell you my story. Maybe it will inspire you to do something differently. To make a statement about the child you just adopted who has AIDS. Oh, wait, you're gay? Maybe you should come out and say something about it and stand up for people who have AIDS and for their victims. And so I guess in comic books where normal people would have that conversation, they have to fight through that conversation with their fist. And I guess that's just comics. So maybe maybe I'm being a little too hard on it. I guess maybe besides the just massive 90s-ness of this book and not necessarily the good part of 90s comics, that how the book kind of lost me a little bit. For the milestone issue that it was, for being the first character at Marvel to come out as homosexual, that part's really good. The dialogue and the art leave a lot to be desired. So I like where we got in the story, not too thrilled about how we got there. But again, thinking about it through 90s comics, it's not as bad as I thought it was at first. So, hmm. I'm going to give Alpha Flight 106 as I as I read this reprint here. Um, man. I feel like it's too important to only give one claw. So I'm going to give it two, but it's a weak two. And if it wasn't kind of a hallmark of social issues in X-Men comics, or in this case, X-Men related comics, the grade would be lower. But because of what it stands for, I'm going to let that buff up a very kind of poor comic and, and make it two claws for what it stands for. So... Yeah, so overall, though, I'm going to give the whole annual, including the reprint, the whole package. Not going to let let the 90s-ness and the bad art of the reprint detract from the great story we let off with. So the whole annual number one gets three claws. All right, well, uh, let's move on. All right, now it's time for something old, something new. Because Wolverine is an all-new X-Men number two. And I decided not to include this in our kind of all-around-the-Marvel-Universe Wolverine guest appearances that I've been doing. I think he's going to kind of be popping in and out of this book. So I'll kind of just cover it as an issue when it does pop up. I won't do it every month because it's not technically a Wolverine book. Though I thought about it because I'm very intrigued by it. But I think I'm just going to... um focus on the ones that Wolverine's actually in. And so he is in number two, written by Brian Michael Bendis, penciled by Stuart Eminen, inked by Wade Von Grabadger, colored by Marte Gracia, letterer is VC's Corey Pettit, and Eminen, Von Grabadger, and Gracia do the cover. And the cover is really nice. It's a uh, you know, in number one, we had the nice wraparound that had Eminem drawing the old X-Men, and on the back cover was the new kind of version. At least Cyclops was new, and the rest were different people, but, you know, kind of the contemporary. So this cover, we have Wolverine, flanked by Iceman, Storm, Beast, Kitty Pride, and Lockheed, and I think that's on the picture. She's not actually in this issue. But one of the new mutants from issue one. I don't remember her name. Um, and it's a really, really nice cover. 
You know, I'm going to say just kind of up front, I am generally a fan of Eminem, Stuart Eminem. I uh, have liked pretty much, I don't claim to have read everything he's done, but everything that he has done that I've read, I like. That said, I feel like so far in these first two issues, he just might be doing his best pencils that he's ever done. And maybe it's the combination of a different inker, you know, and the colors and all that, you know, Von Grabadger and Marte Gracia both do an awesome job. So I'm sure that helps. But it just really looks to me like Eminem's taken all the experience he's had and just kind of bumped everything up a level. And that's really cool. And of course, I'm a Bendis fan, you know, for the most part. Uh, generally love about 95% of what he does. And that's pretty good for a comic book writer. So, but this cover is just fantastic. Everybody's spot on. Wolverine looks sweet. Looks badass. I really like Eminem's Beast. I guess my favorite beast in a while, I have to say. And by a pretty good margin. So I'm really, really digging his beast. Iceman looks kind of impish, but that's kind of the way he's been looking lately. So I like that. And I'm mostly referring to his chin. It kind of looks like... A, you know, I, I don't know why I haven't made this connection before, but it kind of looks like Jack Frost from the uh, Rudolph stop motion movie special or whatever. Just like with the chin and the blue-white skin and... <laughs> his head shape and the and the constant frowning <laughs> it kind of looks like that and Storm is still in her kind of regular 90s costume with her TR thing so I uh, haven't quite got to the Mohawk yet we've been promised in the new X-Force book so anyway great cover so I won't go over issue 1 too much I'll just kind of give a quick recap to catch everybody up to where we are to start off with number 2 okay AVX happens if you haven't read AVX, go listen to some some of my old episodes and get kind of a basic gist of it. But at the end of AVX, Cyclops was Phoenix. He lost the Phoenix power and went to jail. In AVX consequences, we saw him in jail and he eventually was broken out by Magneto, Magic, and Danger. And they decide they're going to go out and recruit some of these new mutants and kind of start like their own X-Men. And our current X-Men kind of see this as an act of mutant terrorism. You know, they kind of see, oh, Magneto's gone back to his old colors, his old spots, according to the leopard saying. And Cyclops and has gone with them. Emma Frost has gone back to being a bad guy. That is our current X-Men's perception. And Magic, well, she's just kind of a bitch. <laughs> so I... It would make me so happy if she would just die in this series. But, um, I don't know. I just don't really like her that much anymore. And after reading kind of her thought process on why she did what she did to Colossus with the Juggernaut thing, I just really don't like her. I didn't like her that much before that. The only time I ever really liked her was when she was just Colossus's little sister. And I know in comic books, especially in X-Men, you can't leave characters alone. Like, every supporting character does something involved at some point. They become an enemy, they become an X-Men, they fight with the X-Men. Like, I knew she couldn't just stay his sister, but I wish she could have. Because as soon as they started doing her with new mutants and all the limbo stuff, I lost my interest. 
anyway, that's neither here nor there. She's not even actually in this issue. So, <laughs> you know, whatever. So, we start off at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning now. Oh, because, all right, yeah, sorry. In issue one, we find out that Beast is going through another mutation and he doesn't feel like he's going to survive it. And he's really worried about kind of where he's leaving the world or where the world, not he didn't really contribute to it, but where the world he's leaving is at, he's not happy with. And he kind of gets kind of to his last vestige of, of hope. He feels like he's at the, Eva says in this issue we're about to do that he's at the end of his rope. And he decides that he want his plan is to go back in time, get the old X-Men, including him old, his old self. I think we established, or they established in interviews, and it seems to match my memory. It happens, I think they said issue 8 of like the old, old X-Men series like back in the 60s. I know it's in the first 10. And he shows up and he's trying to recruit the X-Men to come back and view the world. And I guess the I guess the plan is that he'll show Cyclops what his future self has turned into. And he'll show the rest of the X-Men what the world has become. And let them kind of get a taste of it and then send them back so they can prevent it. You know, kind of the opposite of what, like, Cable and Bishop always tried to do. You know, Bishop came from the future to stay in the present to try to prevent the future. But now Beast is going back to the past to bring people back to the present. And are you confused yet? <laughs> Yay, time travel. But, um, anyway, so now we're ready to start issue number two. And we have Kitty Pride down in the lab at the Jean Grey school and they're they're knocking on the door of Henry's lab, the beast, but he's not answering. And Kitty's like, please don't make me phase in the door. You hate it when I phase in the door. Because you know when she phases, she messes up anything electronic. But her and Iceman are down there and they don't feel like Beast is going to answer. They know something's wrong with them. So Kitty phases through and kind of get the control panel blowing up. Then go in and they see that Beast has been working on some weird stuff involving his own physiology. Kitty tries to hack into the computer and we get a very Jurassic Park moment where Beast's head comes up on a red screen. And funny because it's the, the head of the first blue Beast back in X-Factor when he, or no, I guess before that, back when he was an Avenger and an Defender. And he first mutated into the blue furry beast. So that's the head we get on the screen. And it's like, don't touch that which doesn't belong to you, students of the atom. And it kind of, it kind of reminds me of the part with the, in Jurassic Park where Newman's face comes out. And he's like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> and does it over and over again. Maybe a little less annoying than that, but kind of the same idea. So then we turn the page and we go back to then. Which Marvel wisely is not designating this as the 60s. It's just the past. So, so we don't have to worry about trying to figure out how old everybody is. We just accept it for where it is. It's, it's then, you know, then. 1900 then, right? Okay, got it. Or 2000 then, maybe. <laughs> maybe where we are now, maybe it is 2000 then. I don't know. Time's a funny thing in the Marvel Universe, and it's about to get funnier. But basically, it shows the X-Men, they're kind of in shock because Beast at the end of last issue revealed that future Scott Summers ruins the world and is a mutant terrorist. And so, Iceman's like, I think I speak for all of us when I say, 
What? Say what? <laughs> Sorry. And Beast kind of says, I know it's a lot to take in, but Nice Man's like, I mean, what? Old Beast, human teenager Beast. Okay, that's going to be weird. If I say old, I'm referring to old time-wise, not old age-wise. Oh, man, this is already going to be hard, hard to talk about in a podcast. Um, Okay, I'll do age. Young Beast is deciding, goes, this is absolutely fascinating on every conceivable level. And but Beast is like, he apologizes for what he had to say. Old Beast did, Blue Beast. And Iceman's like, Scott Summers? And Beast is like, yes. This Scott Summers? Yes. This Scott Summers right here is going to bring about the mute apocalypse. I know it's hard to believe. It's impossible to believe. Venice is getting Iceman right, I gotta say. I'm happy about that. And Scott Summers is like, thank you, Bobby. And Iceman's like, I mean, look at him. He's way too boring to bring on the apocalypse. And Jean Grey decides she's going to go get the professor, but Beast argues against it and offers her to read his mind. But she's like, I don't do that. And Beast is like, oh, right, right, not until later. And she's like, I can read minds. And Bobby's still kind of going on, kind of joking about it. And <laughs> he goes, well, what about the rest of us? Are we all, what about future us? Are we all blue and fuzzy? <laughs> and Angel asks, well, why don't you get the professor to help? And we get a really nice panel of bees kind of looking down sullenly in grief. And Jean Grey's like, well, what could I see? What would I see if I could read your mind? He's like, just come with me and I'll show you all. And of course, Young Beast is confounded that she's a telepath, because obviously that at this point in X-Men continuity, she has not developed that power, or at least not exercised it, depending on how you read those old issues, whether she gained it or just discovered it, and it was kind of always there latent. Latently? Is that how you say that? Is that the adverb for latent? I think so. And Jean persists that she's going to go get the professor, but Beast looks over her shoulder and he's like, Okay, the reason I can't go to the professor in my time is that where I'm from, Scott has already killed the professor. Drops a huge bombshell on the young X-Men. It's a really nice panel where they're suddenly in black and white. There's just like a crimson like rectangle behind them. It is very menacing looking and it's a great panel to illustrate the mood of kind of what just got dropped on the X-Men's brains there. And Scott's like, how can you say that to me? And I'm sorry, I really like Bendis' dialogues. If I read a little more than usual, I'm, I apologize, but I'd rather say his lines and summarize them. So, you know, just kind of what I'm probably going to do. <laughs> then Young Beast is like, I don't understand why I did this. I would never risk, like, completely destroying the space-time continuum just to come do this. You know, our Beast... Or old beast says, I don't expect you to believe me. I don't expect you to ever forgive me for what I am now doing. And he said, this is where he says he's at the end of the room and he knows that he's asking them to make the ultimate sacrifice. He says, you are going to witness a world of compromise that will rattle you. Your innocence will be lost. By doing so, you will. I know you will force Scott to face just how far he has fallen and save the mutant population from even further disaster. So now I'm wondering about his plan. And maybe my assumption about it was wrong. 
Maybe he doesn't want the young X-Men to see the future and come back and prevent it. Maybe he actually wants our Cyclops to see young Cyclops and feel guilty about kind of abandoning his optimism. Maybe, like, seeing a younger, more innocent, more optimistic Cyclops would somehow sway current older Cyclops from being a little bit less jaded and kind of go back to Professor X's dream. But, I don't, I don't, that raises a lot of time travel questions if that is Beast's plan. Like, a lot. Then Angel's just like, well, if he, if he killed Professor X, why don't you kill Scott? And Beast is like, because I cannot cross that line. I cannot do it. And then Beast realizes how difficult it is to see Jean Grey alive again. And he wasn't really prepared for that. And he basically says he's going to go outside and wait for them to make up their mind. Bobby asks Hank if, that's really, if that was really him. And he's like, it would seem so. He's like, are you freaking out? He goes, I just can't imagine what I've been through. We get a really nice panel of the old version of the mansion. And Beast is outside, but he's, he, he doubles over in pain. And he's begging himself <laughs> to not kick the bucket just yet. And so the old young, excuse me, that's, I promise you I'm going to mess that up a lot. So I, I'm really sorry. The young X-Men come running outside in their old yellow and blue uniforms. And like, okay, well, how are you going to do this? And Beast pulls out a really big time cube. He says it was invented by Reed Richards and Dr. Doom. But he's modified it for a smoother, more conclusive time travel experience. And of course, Cyclops tells Beast that if it's a trap, he's going to shoot him in the head with his eye beam. And Beast is like, I know. And we see him kind of fade into the time cube. And the last panel is Jean Grey's eyes, which I thought is very telling of the tone of the story. Kind of makes me feel like Jean Grey is going to be pretty important now, you know, that we have her back in a way. And yeah, I, just, I feel like she's going to play a big role. So then they come back to the present. Only to find, for Beast to find, that the school is in ruins because the X-Men left the mansion after episode, after issue 8 and never went back. And so, none of the X-Men history ever happened. Right? Oh. No, everything's just how it was when Beast left. The present is exactly the same. This is why I'm assuming... (laughs) That Beast's plan is to take them back to the where he, you know, like take them back to the point that he took them from, and they can use their knowledge to make the world better. Because if they don't go back, then all of X Men history is screwed, right? I mean, dang it, someone, someone who's really smart about time travel, please write in, comment on the episode on Facebook, email me at snickcast at yahoo.com. Tell me how this works, time travel-wise. I'm not an expert. I love time travel movies. Well, sometimes. I love good ones. But I almost always either get confused or get hung up on why it can't happen. (laughs) And that's just me. That's the way I'm kind of over-analytical sometimes. That's just how I view it, how I read it. But however it works, it's a good story. So for now, I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to swallow... My over analysis about time travel and try to just enjoy. 
So Beast brings young X-Men back to the mansion. He's like, welcome to the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. And young Beast is like, what did you do to the place? And there's stuff kind of floating around. Everything looks really nice and modern. And Angel's like, this doesn't look like the mutant apocalypse. This looks like heaven. And Jean Grey kind of has a kind of a light bulb moment. And she's like, uh, this is Charles Xavier's school. What, 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 why is it named after me now? And she kind of looks sad, as, you know, she would want to be. Then we move over to Wolverine teaching a class. He's getting on to the class because they're not listening. He's trying to explain to them, when you fight ninjas, if you see one, he wants to be seen, and it means it's a trap, basically. But then he sniffs. <laughs> And he's like, um, talk about yourselves. And he starts running for the door. And we get a nice snicked. And Beast is about to lead the young X-Men away. But we get an awesome picture of Wolverine flying through the air with his claws out at young Cyclops. And he's yelling and like saliva's coming, flying out of his mouth through the air. Just an awesome drawing by Eminem and, and the Grab Badger and Gracia. And even the letterer, if he did the huang, which again, I'm not sure who does that. If it's the letterer or the artist, but either way, that looks good too. So I'm going to give him some credit regardless, because he's done a good job in the book. Anyway, a great pair of Wolverine flying in the air trying to attack Cyclops. And Jean Grey spins around, and we get a nice motion of, the, of her tears kind of spinning off of her face. And we get the reddish pink of her telekinesis, and she's like, stop. And she freezes Wolverine in midair. And then young Cyclops, channeling that which he will soon come to dislike about Wolverine, <laughs> shoots him with his eye beam out of the air. And Bobby, Ice, young Iceman, makes an ice slide to catch Wolverine, and he slides down. And then our Storm, Kitty Pride and Iceman, run out and like, uh, what's going on? And Angel's like, well, who are all these people? And Old Beast is like, these these are the X-Men. And can you pride, Hank, what did you do? <laughs> we get a nice panel where on one panel, Old Iceman and Young Iceman are staring at each other. And the next panel, they're both screaming. Ah! <laughs> really nice, really funny. And our Old Iceman is like, hey, are you crazy? Are you just a big ball of crazy? Which I thought was funny. And Beast says, oh, it's your idea, Bobby, because in issue number one, Iceman has said, if we could only, if only we could have known how those would turn out or something like that. And that's, that's where the light bulb went off over Beast's head. But before he can explain that, he doubles over in pain again and then reels back with a scream. And next thing we know, they're down in the med lab. Wolverine's calmed down a little bit. They're saying that they're calling all the experts. Storm left messages with Reed Richards, Tony Stark, and Horizon Labs. And then old Iceman is like, okay, me, looking at young Iceman. Exactly what did our Hank say to you and why are you all here? <laughs> and young Iceman's like, he didn't say anything about me turning into you. And Cyclops says, he said I need to confront myself or the mutant population was going to destroy itself. <laughs> and our beast mutters something if Scott can see what he has become. And then, <laughs> awesome, Wolverine's like, little X-Men, outside now. I think it's great that he calls them little X-Men. And he starts to lecture him that Hank is going through a rough time and not thinking straight. 
So they're going to figure out how to get them back to the regular time. And Jean Grey's like, Snoop! And she's touching her head with her fingers and trying to mind control him. And Wolverine's like, Jean, you know that stuff, my mind stuff doesn't work on me. But then he falls over and starts... Dr- <laughs> he literally is like, falls down on his knees and then face plants with his arms straight back behind him. He kind of looks like a gorilla. And his face is sideways on the floor and he's drooling on the carpet. <laughs> it's really funny and pretty awesome. But apparently Jean realizes that she does have mental powers and telepathy and maybe even some mind control. And Jean says something kind of poignant here. She says to the X-Men, he, referring to Wolverine, was about to tell us we were going to go back to our time even though he was really thinking that Hank McCoy is his hero for doing this. And Cyclops is like, I can't believe this. I killed Charles Xavier? And Jean Grey's like, not to mention I'm dead. And Cyclops, at least to a degree, the beast plan is working. Because young Cyclops is like, this can't be how it ends for us. And Jean's like, you think I want to be dead and dating a homicidal mutant terrorist? <laughs> and Iceman's like, but on the bright side, TV sets are much nicer in the future. Not as nice as I thought they'd be, but still. Say again, Bendis nails Iceman. He gets everybody right, but he nails Iceman, and that makes me happy. And so they ask who the guy on the floor is, and Gene's like, this is Wolverine, he runs the school. And the rest of his thoughts are pretty disgusting. And he hates you, Scott, by the way. (laughs) Bobby can't believe that they have a headmaster with claws, an angel, kind of... Uh, it's funny, a little bit on the nose, but I still kind of chuckled. He's like, well, I think we should go back. I don't, I don't even want to know what happened to me. Which, he may have some of the worst stuff of all of them that happens to him. Well, I guess not worse than being dead for Jean Grey. Before he got a handle on it, that Archangel stuff was pretty rough. <laughs> so like, if you only knew, young Angel, if you only knew. Angel asked Jean if she thinks all this is real. I think it's not, you know, mastermind or... They haven't met Arcade yet, but it's not anyone trying to, like, pull the wool over their eyes. You know, like, maybe they teleported but didn't really go in the future. They're just somewhere else and being jerked around. But she's like, no, this is very real. And Angel's like, then we can go back. We wake up Blue Furry Hank, and we can get him to send him back. But young Hank says it's not possible because he knows that his older self is dying. And that's the only reason he would risk what he had done to the time stream because he feels like he needs one last shot to make things right. And so Cyclops decides he wants to see this all for himself. And Gene kind of says, well, according to them, you're running around collecting new mutants for your mutant terrorist cell. For some kind of revolution. And Cyclops, just to show the juxtaposition of old and new, where he came from and where he is, he's like, revolution? No, we, I, want peace between the humans and mutants. I want it with every fiber of my being. And he means this. He's being sincere, by the way. And Iceman, you know, he had the idea that instigated Beast to go back in time inadvertently. And now our young Iceman is also the one who has the plan. And he's like, well, if he, referring to old Cyclops, is looking for mutants, maybe we should too. And then, I'm kind of excited about this, on the TV, the flat screen that Bobby was moderately impressed by. Reports from the campus of the University of Dallas confirm another new mutant. Hell yeah! New, the new X-Men, the all-new X-Men, which are the old X-Men, but young, are coming to Dallas. All right, that's pretty awesome. 
I don't recall the X Men being in Dallas since like back. Was it um, before or after uh, oh the story with uh, the Goblin Queen, Inferno? It was right around that in the Australia time where where Storm and Forge Forge was in Dallas. That tweet drew, uh, I think it was, where was it? Was it Sylvester? Maybe, or was that right before Sylvester? I can't remember. They actually drew the ball on Reunion Tower. I, I remember being really excited about that when I was a kid. But now I'm excited again that the X-Men are coming to my neck of the woods, coming to Dallas. Awesome. So Kitty Pride comes in because he wants to talk to the X-Men. But they're gone and Wolverine is still laying face down, drooling on the carpet. And the young X-Men are in the Blackburn and they want to know if Angel can fly it because it looks, Bobby says, it looks fancier than our version. I'm sorry that Hank's going to fly it. I thought I remember from the past that Angel used to be the pilot, even though he had wings, which is weird. But for some reason, that was in my head, but I guess it was Beast. But Angel says, last chance, guys. We can turn around now and not crack the space-time continuum. And they all just kind of look at each other, and Beast is like, okay, then seatbelts, and the Blackbird zooms off away. And Storm and Kitty Pride and Wolverine come out like, uh-oh. And then Wolverine looks, is looking up in the air on the last panel, the last little square, and it's like, it was her. It was really her. Genie. And to be continued, next issue is Cyclops walking out of an explosion with all kinds of crazy eye beam thing going on here. Doesn't look like the eye beam I'm used to, but it looks awesome. <laughs> so it's okay. All right, um, so the end of it, slightly awkward. Uh, what is Wolverine planning on doing here? We know he's in love with Jean, always has been. But the Jean, well, okay, let me think about this. Depending on how compressed the time was, Jean wasn't a teenager anymore, I guess. But she was still pretty dang young when Wolverine... If you take into fact the retcons from classic X-Men and stuff, she was still pretty young when Wolverine first kind of fell for her and started to have feelings and fall in love with her. That would have been right around the time of Giant Size number one or X-Men 94. That era is kind of when it's been written, established that that's when he kind of first, that he kind of noticed Gene right off the bat. Uh, so what's he thinking now? Because uh, obviously, if that gene was pretty young, this gene is really young. I mean, if we're talking like inside the first 10 issues and all these guys are teenagers. In fact, when they're trying to help Beast in the lab, can you probably even jokes to the young Beast? is like, what are you, like 12? And obviously he's not that young, but they're teenagers and young teenagers. Surely Wolverine is not... <laughs> Gonna try to imprint his feelings for his gene onto teenage gene. Because that would be really, really creepy. But maybe funny and maybe a good story. I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of worried about that. Or maybe he just, maybe it'll be a different kind of relationship. Maybe it'll be, you know, we talked about when we talked about Wolverine during his first appearance. How Wolverine often has a young girl that he becomes a father figure to. And maybe it'll be this kind of relationship this time around. Hopefully he'll realize that that at this point, <laughs> him being older now, and all right, 
So you take when they first met, and he was probably already older than her significantly, but with this aging healing factor, might not be that much older in body, like as far as dog years and Wolverine years or whatever. But since the time they first met, he's gotten older, and now this gene has gotten younger. So pretty inappropriate if he tries something, and I hope they don't do that. Uh, what do you guys think about that? How do you think Wolverine is going to react? What will his exact reaction be to a, a young, new bio Jean Grey? Yeah, comment on the on the episode or, again, please email at snitcast at yahoo.com and let me know. Let me know what you think Wolverine is going to do about Jean Grey. I want to hear your theories. I don't care how crazy they are. Maybe you'll get it right. Maybe you read Venice's mind. Maybe you're Jean Grey. And you read his thoughts. Because you just found out you can do it. Oh yeah. Well, that's, this is going on pretty long here. Uh, sorry, it was a really good issue. Um, Time travel conundrum aside. Which I'll just, I'll just like I said, I'm just going to kind of wait and see how that plays out. It's not a miniseries. So from what I can tell, these X-Men are in our time for a while. For the foreseeable future. But if they don't ever go back, then there is no foreseeable future. I, I don't know. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and sit on it. That aside, I love this issue. I love the first issue too. This book, out of the gate, is coming off, coming out of the gate really fast with a really good start. Everybody that I read in the credits on this book did an awesome job and did on issue one as well. So, no complaints. Yeah, it's great. Gonna give all new X-Men number two, three very strong claws. Three claws all the way. Very intriguing book, and I'm stoked to see what happens next. Alright, well speaking of next, let's go to our next segment. How about that? Alright. And now it's time for Where's Logan? In this episode, Where's Logan? is brought to you by Shiner Oktoberfest. Unofficially, but that's what I'm drinking right now, so that's what this portion is brought to you by. This month, we have four books that Wolverine kind of pops in, and he's mentioned in a fifth. He's mentioned in A plus X number two, uh, between Tony Stark and Kenny Pride, and they make fun of his body count. <laughs> Clever little joke. Uh, I actually already put that one up, so I'm not really going to talk about it or read the credits or anything. He's not really technically in it. I just wanted to call attention to the fact that he was mentioned. So the four books that Wolverine is in are Avengers 33 and 34, X-Men Legacy 2, and Amazing Spider-Man 698. So Avengers 33 and 34, the last two issues of this particular version of the series. And I've talked about it a little bit last time in episode 9. Uh, it's the whole microverse thing, the return of the Wasp. And Wolverine was supposed to guard the portal in the park with some of the other Avengers while some of the other Avengers went into the microverse to retrieve a, a distress signal. So Avengers 33 is by Bendis wrote it. Terry and Rachel Dodson did the art, and there's a nice Hawkeye Spider-Woman cover by Brandon Peterson. The cover was actually really good. So at this point, <laughs> Wolverine apparently had left the portal. He comes back to it. Red Hulk asked him where he was. Wolverine said, bathroom. Just one word answer. Bathroom. Red Hulk's like, for nine hours? <laughs> I love business sometimes. Wolverine answers, it's my mutant power. 
<laughs> I thought that was really, really funny. And then that's kind of the only part that he's in. Then in Avengers 34, we have art by Brandon Peterson, Mayhew, and the Dotsons again. Uh, still written by Bendis. And we have a really nice Thor cover by Brandon Peterson. His covers on this last little last days or final days or whatever this storyline was called for Avengers. The Peterson covers have been really nice on every issue. Um, this issue's a little strange. Uh, some of the Microverse people come back through the portal and now they're big. And the Avengers fight them in the park. And there are lots of scenes of the Avengers in the park fighting. And a whole lot of group shots. Wolverine's not in any of them. And then, in one group shot, suddenly he's there. And then in the next group shot, he is inconspicuously gone again. So there's at least like a dozen group shots in here. And Wolverine is just randomly in one in the middle and not in any of the other ones. And that's just weird and lame. And I feel like somebody definitely goofed. And the next time we see Wolverine in this issue is the after battle party. And Wolverine is at Avengers Tower enjoying a pint. Okay, I just kind of scanned through both of those issues and didn't buy either of them. Uh, I didn't actually read either of them all the way through. Just kind of flipped through and caught a couple of lines where Wolverine was. Like I said, I kind of... <laughs> it's kind of one of those weird things. I just kind of arbitrarily decided after enjoying Bendis' run on all the Avengers franchises. And after AVX, I really just didn't want this story, this little filler story. I'm going to wait for... Give Hickman's Avengers a try, which, uh, I don't know. Hickman's stuff on the Fantastic Four was a little too fantastical for me. But, that was the characters he was working with. So let's see. I'm going to give him a fair shake, see what he does with the Avengers. Well, I'm going to have to, at least for a little bit, because Wolverine's going to be in it. So, at least in the adjectiveless Avengers. Anyway, I just kind of, like I said, just kind of arbitrarily decided to skip this last story for both Avengers and New Avengers. But for New Avengers, I actually did it because I don't like Hellstrom at all. So I don't really care about that story. I'm not, I don't really like Doctor Strange that much either. So that was all very much that. So, no thanks. Not when I knew it was ending. If I knew I was going to pick up the issue 35... Then I wouldn't want to just be... The collector in me wouldn't want to just miss 33 and 34. But the cool thing about when I enter all this on my computer, I can just stop at 32. I'll just say one through... I'll say Avengers 1 through 32. Next volume, 1 through whatever. I won't even remember that there was an issue 33 and 34. So, hey, take that. All right. Anyway, so I will fall back on my policy. Of, since I didn't read it, I will give both... Avengers 33 and 34, a rating of Bone Claws. <laughs> okay, X-Men Legacy 2, I also didn't buy. Uh, it's written by Simon Spurrier with art by Tan Ing Hot. Or what? What? <laughs> um, with a cover by Del Mundo. Um, yeah, so I kind of like Legion. Honestly, I just, I, I might go back and get the first part of the series in trade depending on where it goes i just felt like i couldn't afford there's too much coming out in marvel now if i buy all the x-men book then i can't buy anything else so this one just kind of got the snippity snip uh for now and i'm not getting it 
Um, so I'm going to give X-Men Legacy number two bone claws as well. But let me very shortly talk about Wolverine's very brief appearance. Um, so basically Legion is fighting somebody with his different... He's using his different personalities. And he's trying to figure out where he stands now that his father is dead. And what he's going to do. I do like the fact that this title is more apt being called X-Men Legacy now that he's actually wrestling with the legacy of his father and where are the X-Men are going to go next. Whereas I felt like when they switched the other X-Men and changed the title to X-Men Legacy, they just needed a name because they were going to start a new X- another new X-Men book that was just going to be just X-Men and Legacy sounding good. I didn't really feel like there was much about the book that aspired to the title of Legacy. Like, it wasn't about people looking back or moving on. It was just a regular X-Men book. But anyway, so basically some of the X-Men sent out a team to what has been, kind of been deemed like a mutant crime scene. And Wolverine is on that scout team. And they're walking around and he smells Legion. And then that part's pretty much done. So like I said, X-Men Legacy 2, I didn't really read. I just read those couple of pages that Wolverine was on. And so I'll give it a bone clause. Now, Amazing 698, I did read. Um, we have this storyline, what's it called, Dying Wish? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's the prelude to Dying Wish. Which is going to be the storyline that ends Amazing Spider-Man. Going into number 700 will be the last issue of Amazing, which pretty big comic news. I'm sure most of you listening to the podcast are already aware of that, at least to a degree. Okay, so this book is by Dan Slott is the writer, Richard Elson is the artist, Antonio Fabella is the colorist, and VC's Chris Eliopoulos is the letterer, and the cover is by Paulo Rivera, and there's a variant cover by Pascal Ferry and Martin Gracia, which I'll have to go look up because I didn't see it at the shop. This cover by, by Paulo Rivera is pretty good. It's got, you know, Doc Ock is... Kind of on his deathbed, and he's kind of got the arms kind of leaning, leaning around his head, which I don't think he has the arms in the story, but it makes for a good cover. <laughs> and he's kind of saying with a weak breath, Peter Parker. So it's a nice cover. I like it quite a bit, actually. Okay, so not being a Spider-Man podcast, which there are plenty out there to go listen to if you want. But I guess basically Doc Ock is in prison on his deathbed. Well, that's really all I need to know going into this story. Well, I don't really know. I'm afraid if I start talking about this, I'm going to... I'm not worried about spoiling it because, I mean, it's been out long enough now that... And my podcast is always... I mean, it's pretty much spoiler from top to bottom, so I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried if I start talking about this, I'm going to really talk about the reveal at the end and go off on it. I'm not sure if I want to spend that large amount of time on it, and I think that I will if I really get into it. Um... Let me see if I can do this very briefly. A, I'm kind of so-so on SWAT. I thought this was a pretty good issue. Um, I feel like he's up and down, but he's been, I mean, he's been riding Spider-Man forever, it feels like. Um, yeah, ever since Brand New Day, pretty much. Or, or no, I guess Brand New Day had a, a rotation. Ever since Big Time, he's been the writer. Yeah, that's like, like over 100 issues, if I remember right. Right? I think. So in that time, not everything's going to be a home run. Um, I feel like this is a pretty good issue, and overall, I've enjoyed his contribution to Spider-Man. He's a good writer, so. 
But we have a, a security alarm going off of the raft, and they're running by different spider prisoners, and Spider Swader is secure. Morbius is secure. Wizard is secure. Damn, that means it's Dr. Octopus. And they run into the room and all click their guns to steady position, or ready position, and cock them, and like, who sounded the alarm? And the doctor's like, I did. He uh, started talking. And he's been in a coma with no brain activity for quite a while. Ever since Ends in the Earth storyline where he tried to basically speed up global warming and burn the world. <laughs> and the guard's like, that's it? The man's on his deathbed and we're all weapons ready because he started mumbling? And another guard's like, that's Dr. Octopus. He wants to take over every machine in the city with his mind. And a month ago, he almost fried the entire planet. So, yeah, we are. And they lean and try to figure out what he's saying. And he very softly says, through the tubes in his mouth, says, Peter Parker. And then we get a golden octobot that also goes, Peter Parker. And then we switch to Spider-Man swinging around. And he's feeling good. And he stops. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to start moving a little bit faster. I want to kind of get... It's a Spider-Man comic, and other people will cover it in other places. So I'm trying to kind of move through it pretty quick. Uh, he finds a really lame villain, and the police ask him if he can make a statement, but he's like, oh, no, I don't think so. I have a life, and he swings off. So he's being kind of rude. Peter Parker's being a little bit of a jerk, but he decides that he's having a good day, and he sees a scar on his face. He's like, where did I get that from? Oh, right. Razor back to the face during the Hobgoblin fight, which was the last issue of Spider-Man. So he gets a voice message. He needs to go see Aunt May in the hospital. And he has a flashback of when he met Mary Jane. And he decides he wants to try to rekindle that relationship. But he gets a call from Max Modell, and he's coming to the office at Horizon Labs. And he decides, he tells Modell that all his previous inventions are nothing. He's going to do more. Then he goes to see his Mary Jane, and they decide to go together. Oh, well, he, first of all, he, he he tries to kind of basically get back with her. Then they decide to go to the hospital together. They see Aunt May, but he gets a, a beep. <laughs> I guess I don't know why Avengers have beepers, but no, it's a little his identity card starts sounding an alarm. So Mary Jane says, "Go, we'll, I'll cover for you." But J. Jonah Sr., who's now married to Mary, uh, Aunt May, J. Jonah Sr. is like, are you kidding me? Your family needs you here. What can be more important than that? But MJ actually covers for him. She's like, normally I'd agree with you, J., but Peter's thing at work is at a crucial stage. He's been talking about it for ages. And he swings off his Spider-Man, and he gets to the raft. And he's like, what's going on? Another breakout? And here we ha he's greeted by Captain America, Hawkeye, Spider-Woman, and... As pertinent to this podcast, Wolverine. He's like, no, we thought you should know one of your old enemies is dying. Won't be long now. He's like, it's Doc Ock, isn't it? Yes, and he's asking for you. I understand. Captain America's like, no, you don't. He's asking for Peter Parker. And Spider-Man's like, take me to him. They go inside. And Wolverine's like, hey, kid, he starts messing with your head. No one will care if he pops off ahead of schedule. You got that? <laughs> and Hawkeye's like, be a little louder, why don't you? That was cool. Slots. Getting Wolverine's character pretty much good to go. Spider-Man wants some privacy. And so the Avengers leave him alone. 
And he goes in there, and Dr. Octopus is like, Peter Parker. And Spider-Man pulls off his mask, and he's like, yes, I'm Peter Parker. And Dr. Octopus starts crying, he's like, no, I'm Peter Parker. And now we get the twist. Peter Parker says, not anymore, Spider-Man. From now on, I am Peter Parker. I have all your memories. I know everything you knew. I have your life and everything that comes with it. And you are now Otto Octavius. Well, with what little time you have left, trapped in that broken body, brought about by years of your own brutal beatings. And like a good magician, I shall not reveal my secrets. You will die, never knowing how I performed my last and greatest trick. And then... Dr. Octopus slash Peter Parker flatlines. Spider-Man slash Dr. Octopus calls for the medics, and he leaves. And Wolverine asks, what? Wait, did you do it? Did you snuff the old bastard? And Spider-Man says, I just said my goodbyes. Apparently, Otto didn't take it all that well. And Captain America asks if he's going to be okay, and he's kind of a jerk again. He's like, honestly, I'm not going to spare a second's thought. I've got better things to do with the rest of my life. Which, of course, reading this issue again after knowing what happened, you realize that from the beginning of the issue, where the switch happened between the last two issues. So between 697 and 698, however they're going to reveal that Dr. Octopus did this, that's when it happened. It happened, we may get a flashback on panel, but the actual switch happened off panel. And that's why, like, Spider-Man has so many flashbacks in this issue. Like, he looks in the mirror and he's like, where did I get that from? And then he remembers it, because now he has he has Spider-Man's memories. Like, oh, right, Hobgoblin, last issue, which makes me believe that Dr. Octopus wasn't in the body at that point in time. And I don't think he was. And, you know, the flashback of Mary Jane. So, first of all, let's say that uh, that slot with Wolverine's dialogue was, was pretty good Wolverine dialogue. And, oh, about the art. I don't really know who this, uh, what was his name? Richard Elson guy is, but I thought the art in the book was pretty good. So, there you go. Um, Alright, not going to say too much about, because the, the old the reveal, the old kind of Freaky Friday switcheroo thing we got going here. Pretty controversial, as far as like online and stuff. And stuff. Personally, for me, the jury's still out. A lot of people are saying it's really dumb and shouldn't be happening. I don't agree with that unless it ends dumb. <laughs> so I think depending on how it plays out, it I would say just based on this issue alone, it has the potential to be a pretty good or conversely a pretty horrible story. And I'm going to wait and see what it does. This issue itself was, um, it was all right. Uh... For our purposes, I will give it two claws. It's interesting. I want to know how it turns out. So, not bad. Yeah. So, Amazing Spider-Man 698 on our Wolverine podcast. We'll get two claws. Alright. So, we have one more section to do for this episode, which I thought was going to be short, but it's not going to be so short after all. (laughs) But that's how comics go. (laughs) <laughs> little Ron Washington for all you non-Texas fans out there. All right. Well, anyway, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next next section. All right, here we go. Okay, so last but certainly not least for this episode, we have Uncanny Avengers number two. Written by Rick Remender. Art by John Cassidy. Colors by Laura Martin. 
and letters by VCs Chris Elipoyos. Uh, the cover was by Cassidy and Martin. And there was a variant cover by Milo Manara. I don't even know who that is. I'll have to look, look that up later. Check out that cover, baby. Alright, well, this cover is freaking sweet. You basically have a red skull with mouth agape, like, coming out at you. And a nice, like, red kind of hypnotic red and white circles from behind his head. You have his new little henchman we saw from issue one kind of standing behind him beneath his head. The whole thing has a red tint to it. It's just, it's a really nice, beautiful cover. Um, yeah, and really, I mean, I knew I was going to buy it anyway. It was in my pool box in my comic shop. We walked into the comic shop, just seeing it, it really jumped off the rack, off of the shelf. Um, really stuck out. Really nice, really nice cover. All right, so Wolverine's in the front part here. He's walking in his jacket and cowboy hat. And I'm guessing he just got to Tibet, because this is what he says. Tibet was a waste. A million hours meditating when it touched the dead weight on my chest. Chuck was the only father most of us had. Disappointing the old man is a rock-bottom pain that nothing can turn off. Dying at Scott's hands? Seems Chuck left with things as bad as he'd ever see. And it turns out the world waited for him to die before entirely wiping its high end on the man's dream. Consider it. Almost a relief he didn't live to see this. Hate like this. Looks you in the eye. Shakes your faith in the whole mess. Giant damn scar bold type across the heart of the world. Broadcasting the root of this catastrophe through a bullhorn. The mutants are back. And Wolverine is showing up to the scene where Avalanche had tore everything up and hurt and it looks like killed some people. And so the Avengers plus Havoc are trying to clean it up. Wolverine says that he, he smelled for survivors. He tells that to Captain America. Cap's like, and? And Wolverine takes off his hat. I'm sorry. And he tells Captain America that he thought Avalanche was rehabilitated and he doesn't really understand why he would do this. And Cap says that his eyes were vacant and something was off. And then Thor steps in and he says that he's witnessed the enmity, he calls it, between mutant and man and believed that it would just kind of work itself out over time and that he should stay out of it. But that he can no longer stand by to let it run its course. And he says, whoever did this wanted to start a war. They will have one. Which I thought was cool. And he says that they have earned the attention of Thor, God of Thunder. So Thor's pretty cool here. Not a huge Thor fan. Uh, like the movie, don't usually like the comics. But so far in this book, he's he's pretty interesting. And Cap swears that they'll find he was behind it. But right now, the first priority is to prevent more bloodshed. To ensure that no one uses this catastrophe to further an agenda of hatred. And he's talking to Wolverine and Thor, and he says, Havoc has agreed to lead an Avengers unit. I'm going to publicly announce that he'll head up this investigation. People need to see humans and mutants committed to working together, now more than ever, before mur before mourning turns to violence. <laughs> and Wolverine kind of takes issue with this. He's like, a lot of people are dead at the hands of a mutant, and you want the brother a mutant who nearly took over the planet to head up the Avengers' response to this. Gonna, picks, gonna piss folks off, Steve. 
You're going to get mutants killed. And Cap says, I thought you'd be supportive of this, Logan. <laughs> Logan's like, well, you must not have thought I'd be too supportive if you're just telling me after the fact. And Cap makes a good point, though, a good rebuttal. He's like, this is what Professor X was doing. He put kids in uniforms and sent them out into the world to protect and serve and to win hearts and minds. And he talks about having his credentials again, which we went over kind of last issue. He's strong and ethical, a proven leader, a man who normal people can identify with as we navigate this. So Wolverine takes umbrage again. And Cap probably could have worded that better. Could have maybe said, you know, he used to be in charge of X-Factor, which had decent PR back in that day. I guess, I don't know how they are today. I don't really read it anymore. But, but back when it was Havoc and Polaris and Strong Guy, you know, there was decent time for them as far as human mutant stuff. But he maybe could have said it better. Because Wolverine says, oh, picking the pretty mutants to be our public face, huh, Steve? And but Cap kind of doesn't BS Wolverine here. He goes, well, I won't lie. He basically says, I won't lie. He won't frighten people, and that's important. But what matters most is that he's a good man. The mutant community needs, and Wolverine's like, listen to you, mutant community. There ain't no such thing, Cap. So loaded, drunken sincerity, feeding an illusion that we all belong to something bigger. So Wolverines can be kind of pissy. And a fireman brings up an old man to Havoc. He wants to shake his hand. And he basically says, I know we lost a lot of people, but you saved me and my wife's life. He goes, I don't care what they're saying about mutants. Havoc goes to shake his hand, but the guy bypasses him for a hug. The old bypass the handshake for a hug routine. And he's like, there aren't enough heroes in the world. Captain America, Thor, and Wolverine are all watching this, and I think at least clicks a little bit that Wolverine might realize that Cap is at least kind of right. And, you know, I, I think he trusts Havoc. I think he's just worried about how it might affect his school and the public perception of mutants. I think they both have valid points. Personally, I'm glad because I like Havoc, and I'm glad to see him back. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, so, we have different pundits on TV. Uh, pretty much giving anti-mutant propaganda. And we see a few different mutants watching it, and the people that are with turn on them. And we realize that really, there's not pundits on the TV, but the Red Skull. And he's using some dude in his posse. Uh, oh, Honest John, the living propaganda. And he has made it so that everybody thinks they see the regular TV people Instead of Red Skull. But he also, I guess, it's, since his name is has propaganda that he has the ability to make people believe what they're hearing, in a way. And that's why these people suddenly got violent towards the mutants that were around them. That's the only thing I can think of. And it also makes more sense when we get towards the end. So remember last time Rogue and Scarlet Witch were captured? Well, Rogue breaks out. Uh, the water girl gives her a drink. But she spits it on her and through that absorbs her power. And so she turns into water and starts to get away. And then Red Skull wakes up the Scarlet Witch. And she's mad at him, but he basically kind of erodes her mind down into agreeing with them that they wanted the same thing. That she was right to say no more mutants and destroy the mutant race back in House of M. 
And we find out this is not the Red Skull of recent history, but that at the end of World War II, Arnim Zola made a clone of the Red Skull and put him in a bunker to preserve him until some time had passed and people were a little less angry about the Nazis, which he must have got out on accident because people were still pretty pissy about Nazis. I mean, they're still kind of like the worst bad guys ever. So what we see, though, is Red Skull is basically mind-controlling Scarlet Witch, and she agrees to help him. And Rogue attacks her, but she doesn't. She can't control her powers. Like right? she absorbs the powers, the chaos power from Scarlet Witch, but she can't control it. And Scarlet Witch basically says that it's one thing to have her power, but it's her time spent actually becoming a witch in Wondagore that made her able to control the power. That's why Rogue can't do it because she doesn't have the experience. Which, you know, I just read A plus X number two. One of the things I hated about it is that Rogue just absorbs everything from everybody. Memories, knowledge, everything. Which I don't think fits Rogue. I thought she just absorbed mutant abilities. Or powers, at least. I mean, she, I guess Miss Marvel wasn't mutant. She took all her powers. And it's her personality, so I guess she does. Well, now I'm confused. Then, then why doesn't she just take Scarlet Witch's experience and the training she got in Wendigore and apply it to herself and use her... So she couldn't be able to use her powers. I'm... Which is it, Marvel? Which is it? <laughs> if anybody has an explanation or something that might be no prize worthy, I have no prizes to give you, but I'd still love to hear it. So again, comment, go to Facebook, email me at snipcast at yahoo.com. Oh, by the way, Facebook address is facebook.com slash snitpodcastfanpage. If you want to go there and join, like it. Like the page, come on. Anyway, give me uh, give me your impressions as of the two stories that came out last week, A plus X number two or Uncanny X-Men number two. Which one is the flagrant misuse of Rogue's powers? Because I don't feel like they can both be right. But they fight and they fall through the fake forest floor down into a room. And that's where they realize that Prof- Professor X has been zoomed and his head cut open. And both Scarlet, Scarlet, this snaps Scarlet Witch out of it. And Rogue is sad, obviously. Because Professor X meant a lot to both of them. Professor X accepted Scarlet Witch in spite of her father. You know, she feels like that he didn't reject her based on how bad her father was. And, you know, they're both ex-villains that were accepted by Professor X. Because Rogue obviously started off as a villain and attacked the Avengers and the X-Men. And Professor X had the X-Men take Rogue in, even though they argued with him about it. Now, I gotta say, Cassidy's version of old Professor X in this book looks like a female mannequin. <laughs> like, without a wig, like the shaved head. It looks like a shaved head female mannequin. It's very feminine looking in the flashback. So, we find out, though, that Red Skull, while he exhumed the bodies, he took Professor X's brain. That's why he was able to mind-control Scarlet Witch, and possibly him combined with the propaganda guy's power was why he was able to convince people to commit atrocious crimes against their mutant friends and family. Then we end with the last scene from uh, Professor Red Skull <laughs> walks in and we get nice little orange and yellow mind control waves and he and his new henchmen are gonna fight Rogue and Scarlet Witch in the end. Alright, well not the end, to be continued. I thought that was a pretty good book. Not quite as just wall-to-wall awesome as number one, but hey, a great number two issue. Um, 
Let's see, two claws or three claws? What do I want to go with? Art and writing were really good. The story moves along. Three claws. I'm going to go with three claws for Uncanny Avengers number two. Okay, so that's officially it for this episode. We are officially done with all the Wolverine books for November 2012. Getting ready for December 2012. Which may or may not be the last episode of the podcast, depending on if the Mayans are right or not. Um, but my plan is to make at least one more episode before the end of the world uh, to cover the December books. Uh, that'll be episode number 12. So, again, please um, like the Facebook page. Send me some emails. Email is snitcast at yahoo.com. Uh, Facebook.com slash snitpodcast fan page. Oh, just set up tweet Twitter. Um, so news on that. Um, you can haven't done much yet. Uh, I've never actually used it before, so I'm uh, figuring it all out. But Cameron Sinclair, who was gracious enough to co-host on Wolverine's first appearance during episode ten, was also gracious enough to help me set up Twitter. Actually, he kind of did it for me. Just said, "Hey, you have Twitter now," <laughs> which I thought was very cool. So, um, anyway, it's at Snitcast. Pretty simple, huh? So, like I said, not a whole lot on there now. Uh, basically, just <laughs> basically just announcing myself to Twitter is pretty much all I've done so far. Uh, and I even did that. Cameron did that for me, too. But, yeah, I hope to uh, kind of get into that and tweet some stuff. So, if you want to follow me there, uh, feel free. But, yeah, give me some opinions uh, about the podcast, about the books. Maybe you think my opinions are crap. You want to give me a different one. All right, go for it. Do it. Maybe you think I'm awesome. Maybe you want to rave about how much better the episode last time was with two people. Couldn't really disagree with you. (laughs) Anyway, um, this episode's over. So, unless you're listening to these after the fact, like maybe you listened to episode 20 and you went back to number one. But if you listen to this in real time, then... You have to quit listening and just wait till the next episode comes out. Sorry. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Bye.